Hi, and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talks about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm CEO Peter White, and we have with us today the Rethink editor, um, Harry Morgan, who's with us for the last time as he's moving on to pastures new, uh, although he might uh, come back to visit um, on uh, as a guest on the podcast. Hi, Peter. And all our analysts are here, um, Andres Wontanar, Ogden Avramuta, and Connor Watts. Hello. First, we plan to talk about our latest hydrogen report, um, which predicts just how much hydrogen transport is going to cost, how much of it will go by pipeline, and how much by ship. Um, we're then going to talk about a uh, obscure... U.S. startup that's just come out of uh, stealth earlier this year, which claims to have a battery which is five times the power of lithium-ion, but which also can be poured in and out like a fuel. And finally, we're going to look at a report which shows how Africa is potentially on the verge of making a massive mistake building out more natural gas infrastructure. First, we'll go to Harry. Um, Tell us about your latest and last research paper for Rethink Energy. Yeah, so I, I think so. One of the key things that has come out really from the past few weeks and some of, the, some of the debates we've had on LinkedIn is how important hydrogen distribution is going to be in terms of defining the, the overall cost of hydrogen, certainly from uh, the customer side of things. Um, I mean, the actual cost of hydrogen distribution, as we see it, is, is going to be almost as much as production in many instances, uh, and the costs actually can vary more. We're, we're seeing in our modeling between sort of 50 cents and $1.86 per kilogram of hydrogen, depending where you transport it from. And that can dictate to around two thirds of the cost of the overall hydrogen for the consumer. So it's crucial, really, that companies and countries really know how much the hydrogen is going to cost, where to get it from, how to sign their supply agreements, and what um, distribution methods to use. I mean, we're looking at a hydrogen market, right? That's going to be distributing around 735 million tons per year. Um, and in country, companies like Germany, for example, where you've got this really high cost expected for green hydrogen, um, looking at around sort of two dollars sixty per kilogram. When you look at Countries like Australia, for example, despite the fact it's the other side of the world, producing hydrogen for around $1.20 per kilogram, you've got this suddenly $1.40 uh, budget disparity where you've essentially got this budget to distribute hydrogen for that cost, uh, which actually is going to be fairly achievable using some different uh, distribution methods. I mean, there's four main types that we see really in terms of hydrogen distribution, and that's trucks, vessels, pipelines, and then actually distributing electricity and producing hydrogen on site. Um, but as we see in terms of modelling, there's only two really that um, can do this at a, at a low cost, and that is the vessels and the pipelines themselves. OK, we don't see um, hydrides making an appearance at the moment. Well, hydrides can very much come. So hydrides, um, potentially, yes, they can come in form of uh, liquid, well, organic hydrogen carriers. Um, we're more focused at the moment on liquid hyd- organic hydrogen carriers, um, such as TEC, for example, and there's actually, I mean, there's very many different ways you can transport hydrogen in all of these mediums. You've got gaseous hydrogen, you can compress that, you can make it liquid hydrogen at really low temperatures, uh, or, or, yeah, you can turn it into these um, these carriers or actually into ammonia. So it's all about the the technical the technicalities of each of these delivery mechanisms that uh, really define how economic they are. And I'm right in thinking that hydrides, although the research has been going on for almost 20 years into transporting hydrogen via hydrides, that nothing definitive has come up yet. No, I mean, it's difficult to say, though. So at the moment, obviously, we, we have some level of hydrogen industry already in operation surrounding oil, oil refining and fertiliser production, but that's very much site-based. So you're actually seeing the, the hydrogen produced being grey hydrogen produced using natural gas, 
produced on site that's, um, and then just using small, low, uh, low pressure pipelines to move that gas from A to B. As we're moving towards this hydrogen economy, as you, as you can say, we'll have these hydrogen hubs producing vast amounts of hydrogen and you've got sort of huge distances between the point of production and the point of demand. So there will have to be some change in how the industry is approached and potentially hydrides is a way that we could see that could see that done. The way we see it at the moment is that, I mean, I've up to distances of around 5,000 kilometres. So, uh, so if you're looking at um, comparable distances of maybe um, the southern UK to maybe North Africa, that's around around the same distance if you're looking at it from a nautical perspective. The way we see the most efficient way of um, hydrogen distribution there is using is using pipelines. So um, here the benefit is obviously you've got huge amounts of volumes that you can transport using one facility, especially if you can um, construct the pipeline well. Um, obviously, that's how the industry has built itself so far. But you've got a high capital cost and a, a long delay time to build a pipeline. Yes, exactly. So that's the that's the real issue there. I mean, the, the real benefit is obviously if you can use old pipelines, and we expect to see sort of a forty five percent reduction in the overall cost of hydrogen delivery if you can use old pipelines. Obviously, you're constrained there to where these pipelines exist. Um, but yeah, again, you, you really benefit from these large delivery volumes. As soon as you go beyond five thousand kilometres, though, then you've got the capital cost of these pipelines and obviously the disruption you just talked about, Peter, it becomes slightly too much and it's, it scales obviously fairly linearly, linearly with the delivery. And that's when looking at sort of ships, basically, and vessels, that's when that starts to come in and you see uh, liquid, uh, liquid organic hydrogen carriers becoming the best option we see at that over those distances. Um, they, they, as ships, they've got a much lower capex than liquid hydrogen carriers. Obviously, you don't have to maintain a temperature of minus 250 degrees celsius uh, and you've got less boil off as the as the ship actually moves um you can deliver a much larger amount of hydrogen than if you're compressing or using just simply simply ga- uh, gaseous hydrogen and actually if you're looking at the the cost of packing and unpacking as we go into in depth in the research paper it's actually a lot less than ammonia so with ammonia you've got the harvard bosch process to actually produce the ammonia and then you've got to crack the ammonia to produce the hydrogen again whereas with um, the hydrogenation and dehydrogenation of these LOHCs, that's when the cost can become a lot lower, especially if you can reduce the the costs on the unpacking end where people are often having to use uh, retail prices for things like electricity and gas. Now, I'm right in thinking that your um, your um, social media inbox has been filled with uh, doubters about both the price of um, of hydrogen and the price of transporting it. Um are you managing to make any headway? I mean, is this, there still seems to be this almost organised uh, denial, hydrogen denial group who, uh, who who are trying to say none of this is possible. I think the way that these these people are approaching this, this is they're not actually coming at it. And it it took, it took me a bit of time to realise this. Obviously, there was quite a few again quite a few messages through that we're we're massively underestimating the cost of hydrogen. Um, Etc. And, and there are points where you start to question yourself and think, oh, actually, maybe maybe I am wrong on this. But then, when you actually look deeply at what they're saying, people are basically trying to pull holes in your in in your methodology and saying, oh, well, they're they're not considered this. But I mean, at this to, in our modelling that we got criticised a couple of weeks ago, it was very much focused on hydrogen production costs and very much aligned with what we believe is going to happen, what many people believe is going to happen. Um, a lot of what they pointed at was, oh, you're not considering the distribution costs. Well, now we are. And these distribution costs are, as we've said, they're agnostic as to how you're producing the hydrogen. So when we're talking about producing hydrogen at $1.50 per kilogram by 2030, that very much is still going to be cost competitive with grey hydrogen. And it's not necessarily. And when you're talking about using it in uh, in, the, in the transport sector, for example, that is it is completely irrelevant to what we're talking about in terms of this costing. 
Obviously, we have our own views on whether or not hydrogen is going to penetrate passenger cars, for example, or home heating. Um, and that it does have a, a hill to climb in terms of competing with electrified technologies there and to a certain extent natural gas in those, in those areas. But they have to decarbonise and and hydrogen at this cost, we believe, is, is the way to do it in many cases. How many, over the past two or three years, you've had multiple uh, tens of touch points with people inside the hydrogen industry. I mean, are they all pretty much in agreement with um, with this with this paper? Yeah, so I think in terms of in terms of the costing that we're coming out with, it's very much uh, aligned with what other people are saying. Some people are slightly more bullish on liquid hydrogen uh, as an interim, so they see obviously hydrogen pipelines uh, offering a cost advantage up to maybe around two thousand, three thousand kilometres. Liquid hydrogen then having a little bit of a um, sort of a Goldilocks moment, um, sort of in between the two, um, and then uh, liquid hydrogen carriers, uh, liquid organic hydrogen carriers um, taking over from then on. We see uh, LOHCs because there's a lot of uh, ongoing research going on there. We see them actually producing sort of a, a lower cost than liquid hydrogen uh, in many cases. And I think um, pipelines, especially if you can retrofit pipelines, that's when they start to displace the need for liquefied hydrogen. I think in terms of actually maintaining that low temperature over those distances, it doesn't really seem to make sense in terms of vessels and we've seen a lot of companies actually come out over the past few weeks and say that potentially that's not that, that isn't how they're going to do it uh, dnv for example are a huge player they've said that liquid hydrogen isn't really how they see hydrogen being distributed anymore uh, despite having quite a lot of research uh, resources into that um and yeah i think that generally and when we're not ruling out liquid hydrogen altogether right i think in terms of the aviation sector that is some, some place where we, we could expect to see it and i'm sure that's that's an area that you might want to talk about peter in your um, with the startup you just interviewed and, and the competition there, but um, yeah, I think really there's two there's two key areas um, where hydrogen distribution at scale will be cost effective, and that's in pipelines and in ships via LOHC. Obviously, you will need trucks to a certain extent for uh, on land distribution to some extent, but yeah, it's going to be those two primarily. I think. I mean, uh, I want to point out. So we've got a new story in the current issue, which is free. It points to the research paper, which is going to be published later this week. Um, if you want to go and register your interest now, you can do that. Um, this is really a moment in time. We're very early in the hydrogen revolution, and uh, this is how we see it at this moment in time. Things may change. Um, we don't rule out um, massive innovation make, uh, making a change, but our view of, uh, of that innovation tends to be that once people get started down a particular track, um, uh, pretty soon, within a two or three years, um, they've driven down the cost of that process to the point where it's very hard for a, a better process even to catch up um, in, in terms of cost and penetration. So we've seen many, many um, uh, uh, technical solutions arrived at that weren't the best technical solution, but they end up dominating. So uh, uh, that, that's where we're coming from on this paper. Um, we're not ruling out that other other approaches might appear, um, but we are kind of. Uh, on the note of pipeline distribution, do you think that countries like Russia will have a say or oppose the idea of using some of the pipelines that they own for hydrogen instead of uh, gas? I think, um, I mean, it, obviously you have to have both um, parties willing to to be sh- using hydrogen, shifting towards hydrogen. I think Russia probably will be along the last to do that. Although we're looking at a country that's suddenly going to have two pipelines linking itself to Europe um, that are going to be pretty much redundant. So if if Russia is looking at 
I mean, we're not talking about the near-term future here, but we're looking at maybe 10, 20 years. If Russia managed to regain some sort of geopolitical standing, um, then it will have the, this infrastructure that it could look to retrofit. And Russia obviously has a huge amount of land resources and capacity to produce renewable energy that it could then import into Europe. I mean, we expect to see the same from countries like uh, Kazakhstan, for example, with these hydrogen hubs that are being planned there. Um, and these countries that are being are much more willing to invest in hydrogen infrastructure that could then supply uh, supply Europe. I think it, is, it, it does need to be a joint approach from countries, and we need to see um, these these trade agreements signed. And we're seeing we're seeing those already. I mean, Germany is really leading the way in terms of signing trade deals with. I mean, people, countries like Chile, for example, where it would be probably taking a ship based approach to importing fuel, um, but also countries in North Africa um, where yeah we could be looking at pipelines. Um, or well, all LOHCs, it's very much an either or there. So um, I think, yeah, it depends on the ambition of both countries and it depends on uh, the ambition of them to actually use hydrogen. But I think if the supply deals are there and if the interest is there from, say, Germany's perspective, then there's no reason why um, countries that are, that could, could suddenly benefit from this by producing huge amounts of renewable energy, huge amounts of hydrogen, there's no reason why they wouldn't say, OK, yeah, we will use a pipeline for hydrogen, be that a new pipeline, be that an old pipeline that we're suddenly being mandated to turn into hydrogen. Yeah, but I think before there's an economic impact on natural gas, um, we're looking at 2032, 2035 before... Um, and obviously, Russia can't export anything down the pipeline to Europe at the moment, but uh, has one pipeline built into China um, and is, is still talking about another, which I don't think will happen while the gas is at this price. But um, so, so it's, it's already got a business. We, we model Russia as being one of the latest adopters of hydrogen and one of the last to give up natural gas. Um, and I don't see any reason to change that in our modelling at this time. Uh, OK, so moving on. Um, we've, we've got something that might even be a threat to hydrogen. Um, it's um, described as a high-energy nanofuel. Um, and it's, there's a video of um, uh, the founder of Influent Energy uh, in, in our paid section of our site. Um, there's a news story uh, this week um, that points to that as well. The, um, the idea of a nanofuel is actually a flow battery. If you, Conceptually, you think um, flow batteries are pretty stable. Got a couple of advantages over flow batteries. Uh, number one is that the nanoparticles um, are not um, dissolved in a fluid. They are, um, it, it is a suspension. And as a result, they've worked on, for 20 years, on improved viscosity and improved uh, w with a very high percentage, up to 80% um, of, uh, of the mass being these nanoparticles. Um, and there's two, two of them. Um, one's a catholite, one's a, um, um, the other electrode, and they are effectively, um, they come together and create an ion flow, the same as a flow battery, but they're inside the fluid. Um, there is no, there's no um, separate uh, architecture um, um, to, that's heavy. Uh, typically, flow batteries are three or four times the weight of, um, of lithium-ion batteries. And the, the genius of this is that when they're discharged, when they're fully discharged, you can just pump out the fluid and pump in more fluid that is already charged. Um, so you can treat it like a fuel Investors include uh, the, the U.S. Air Force Laboratory, uh, NASA, uh, and ARPA-E. Um, 
and, and that's mostly been through grants and it's only a few million dollars but they came out of stealth in January they've been trying to bang the gong since then um, they've obviously attracted quite a lot of um, interest peculiarly from the oil and gas sector who um, who see it as more like oil and gas but it's effectively a battery you can recharge it in situ just by applying electricity current the other way or you can flow it out pour it out and and pump it in just like a fuel um the reason that the uh, department of defense in america is really interested in this is um simply to the logistics uh, to get into a theater uh, into a kind of battlefield scenario um all they've got to do is get this fluid there and have a have an electricity supply and it can be used to power um vehicles heavy vehicles uh, because of its energy density um, and the um, uh, as well as aircraft so um, the, the company has got uh, its first generation products out there they're working in warehouses and powering smaller devices its second generation product is is coming out later this year and it's, they claim it's five times the density of lithium ion energy density that is uh, what hours per uh, kilogram of weight so um uh, the guy who uh, gave the interview um um mr katsudas is um utterly convinced that he's on the verge of a breakthrough and that um this can substitute um for both lithium ion at, at the top end and hydrogen as well uh, in the marketplace can anyone see that really happening i i was staggered in the interview because i i because i was going through the logic and thinking he could be right but then i remembered that the best solution doesn't always win the um the question i i had when i looked into the interview and i think yeah obviously dealt with the questions really well and i think the the big flag that i see saw come up was the fact that i don't, I don't want to say it's a red flag but it, the fact that it's obviously, obviously got this relation to the air force in in the u.s um it seems obviously as a as an institution that doesn't necessarily prioritize cost over anything uh, or the commercialization uh, ability of, of the fuels it's looking at um, yeah, and he's saying it, it, it prioritizes logistics and that and that this is a, you know how do you want to distribute this you can stick it in a truck and drive it somewhere and then reuse it where it is as long as it yeah which which obviously it which ties itself in very well with their existing infrastructure yeah. um i mean do, do, do you think that this is something that will be we can become cost competitive on a commercial scale that people who are worrying about costs will have to end it's up it's 50 percent. the material costs are 50 percent the price of lithium iron but obviously if by the time you build a factory and you start producing this um the actual costs of an installation will be higher than lithium iron at first until we go through a learning curve and get some economies of scale but but if there is one customer who can give you economies of scale it's the largest user of petroleum in the world it's the american uh, armed forces so if that drives the economies of scale because they choose to use it um my belief is that people will go down a conventional route aligned with um what everyone else is doing unless it doesn't work so if the um if the uh, air force and the army cannot find uh, a way to use hydrogen cannot get from a to b um with uh, electric uh, vehicles they they will only use it then if those things don't work because they'll be driving down in costs and they'll have large companies behind them 
Having said that, you only need one big company to back this. And, and let's face it, if you go to the US Air Force and say, I want to, I'm a 14-man company, I want to sell you this, they'll, give you, they'll move you into the hands of a 50,000-person company with uh, multiple tens of billions of revenue to guarantee it as a source. Um, if somebody like that steps up, they might change the course of history. My instinct, as, as, as you'll see in the interview, is this will not fly. Um, but uh, then faced with the zeal of the, of the CEO, you kind of go, you know, he may have something. Um, that's all off in the future. and We won't really know about that for a few years. Um, there's a disturbing uh, article. Um, I believe it was you, Connor, that wrote the uh, piece on Africa. Is that right? Uh, and and the, uh, the it's a, it's a report written is it by Global Energy Monitor um, that effectively uh, highlights how African countries are being railroaded into not just exploiting their own gas reserves but building infrastructure based on gas as a result of that um, and it's the the, the age old formula of um, and. Give us permission to do this, and your your um, Swiss bank account will be filled with um, goodies um, as a result of it. It's it's a kind of political nightmare that normally results in Africa getting the uh, short end of the stick. So t- tell us about the story. So it's four hundred billion worth of investment going towards natural gas extraction primarily. So it's utilizing new gas fields and expanding the use of ones that already exist. And very, very little of that is going towards gas-fired plants and anything that would be of domestic benefit. So the idea is to take it out of the ground, sell it to someone else, just keep the money. Exactly. Okay. And whose who's money is this? Is the money coming, is it pledged by, by Western banks? Somewhat, yes. There was, um, in Energy Monitor's report, they mentioned how African leaders were still encouraging a lot of foreign investment from other countries into fossil fuel investment alongside renewable investment. So there is still some of that, but they're also heavily encouraging fossil fuel investment from abroad as a short to medium term solution is where they said that they see the validity, which I can't agree. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna end up like Russia. You know, we've got gas, so that's that's what we're selling you. We're not we're not we haven't got anything else, so we're not selling you that. I mean, that's it's exactly the same situation Russia finds itself in. I think they just see the current very very high prices, and they can't see past that. They're looking at it now, and they're saying, "Oh, yeah, this will stay." When once you've expanded these fields to be producing at kind of mass capacity, they. You lose your customers and you need to build new pipelines. Right, but I can't see anybody um, shelling out in a final investment decision for um, extraction of gas, natural gas from a new field while the price is this high because the high price is a disincentive for anybody to buy it. Um, and everybody is pledging a drop in the amount of natural gas that's going to be used. All right, we're expecting that price to come down marginally over the next few months. Um, however, Bogdan's uh, done, carried out a report which forecasts that um, the price won't get back to anywhere close to normal until something like 15 or 20% of usage has been cut out 
and that won't be until the end of 2024. So, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's a weird thing. When the price is high, no one invests in infrastructure because they're frightened that, that it's priced off the market. That's, that's true what you said about the gas uh, price, Peter. And I guess that's, that's the risk you run with um, when you're talking about countries or regions that are uh, embedded with corruptions, as we know the cases with Africa. So maybe in such scenarios, masks don't really make sense and things can be bent, as in rules can be bent. Yeah, no, I, I suspect you're right. When a private individual um, just has the gleam of money in his eyes, he makes uh, irrational decisions for his economy, uh, but rational decisions for his bank balance. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the way um, uh, largely Western uh, oil companies have... Uh, have abused Africa. Um, the, the other area of abuse, of course, is, has been, and, and is now no longer in the books, is all the coal plants that China was going to build in Africa, which we no longer hear about, because China has pledged that it won't do that, and it's not going to uh, fund these through the Belt and Road Initiative. Instead, it will fund renewable energy. And our, our, my expectation is China will stick to that, and that its funding mechanisms will be tied to infrastructure, but to renewable infrastructure as we go forward, and that final investment decisions on coal plants will not happen. Uh, and we've seen, we've hardly seen any of those actually crystallise in the last two or three years. So that we'll we'll see China at least as, as a major actor wanting global infrastructure influence, um, doing the right thing by renewables, and that will perhaps give some of these countries an opportunity to to let go of the the natural gas um, funding. I mean, 60, 56, 56 billion in funding for new gas-fired power plants, it's actually quite a lot. That's enough to build like 60 gigawatts of capacity, isn't it? Which is the same as South Africa's total generating capacity. Yes, but it's heavily, heavily concentrated within countries that already have comparably urbanized infrastructure to where, well, in comparison to where all the gas fields actually are. So it's mostly in countries within Africa that already have a comparably urbanized population. It's not going towards the poorest. Hmm. It's almost entirely going towards areas that already have some infrastructure and could use a bit more. So it's, it's basically Nigeria and a few others. Yeah, I think it's Nigeria and South Africa get most of it, I believe. I think the, the logic is, is age-old logic. Um, we've got some stuff that the West wants. Let's sell it to them and use the money to build a, um, a better uh, a, a community. Except the money never finds its way into the community. Um, it's the same uh, economics lesson we got from, um, from uh, uh, the last... Uh, banking crash, which is if you put the money in at the top at large organisation and among the wealthy, it doesn't get spent inside the economy, and so your economy doesn't get a lift. If you if you build infrastructure projects and pay the poor people to build them, then the poor people spend the money straight away, and your economy doesn't remarkably well. Um, so a, a top down approach to money doesn't work. A bottom up approach is the only way. Um, agreed, Connor. Absolutely, yes. I'm of the firm belief that trickle-down economics was one of the uh, worst lies sold. Uh, yeah, especially since they already knew it was a lie. I mean, uh, and Connor has a degree in economics, so I kind of defer to him on that. Um, 
Yeah, no, so I think Africa remains a problem. Um, it remains a problem not just in energy terms. When you look at the energy, um, the energy per capita produced by each of um, the 30 or so major countries in Africa, you find they're very low compared to the rest, of, compared to, say, Europe. Uh, they're incredibly low compared to, say, Canada. Um, and the, the, at the moment, the biggest problem that African countries have is cooking on something that's not wood so that they're not inhaling smoke all the time which is a is a a, a true health uh, negative benefit and um, and shortens lives they've got a lot more basic problems than this and governments should really be thinking this through on a, a in its entirety uh, on what they want to achieve and some are but only they're in the minority has anyone else um, got any item they want to pick out from the issue today? Uh, well, I did a piece on China increasing its electricity prices. I, I won't go into it in huge detail, but um, it, it's quite significant because they haven't really, you know, this, this, they, they, they had a whole decade where they didn't change the electricity price and they even forced it down a little bit even more. Uh, and ever since the end of 2021, uh, since the coal shortage crisis that the tr- country had, they've been ramping it up constantly in, in various different um, provinces. And they also had the hydropower crisis uh, in August this year. So uh, it's, it's just interesting because it's quite a change from the past 10 years. And this is the world's factory. I think I think it's really interesting. I think it's really interesting. They, they, when you look at it, if, if you know, people will say, why are you going on about China all the time? But the, the truth is, uh, until China has... Um, different prices for electricity from region to region and from one time of day to another, there is no arbitrage to be had. There is no real requirement for battery, um, even though China is probably the second largest uh, um, uh, country in installing battery already after America. Um, yeah, by, by my understanding, they actually do have different regional prices, although there's probably a sort of arbitrary element to that. Um, the time of day pricing they've introduced for quite a few years, but it's again, it's very sort of limited and it's like linked to the coal price. And the batteries, I believe, are, they're sort of a requirement. You, if you build renewables, you're required to have at least 10% of the capacity in battery as well for two hours. Sorry for butting, I just thought I'd. No, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and, and that's because it's a planned economy. Um, mm. But slowly, the economic influences of, well, why, you know, I'm going to move here because the electricity is cheaper. I'm going to move my factory here because the electricity is cheaper. Um, We've seen that, and we've seen people moving into uh, the northern regions for that reason alone. And economic influences start to um, change the rules, and I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the price of energy has effectively gone up. I mean, there's several um, tens of billions of dollars that have um, leaked out of the Chinese economy into the Russian gas economy um, more than usual be- because of the price of gas. And, and um, you know, they've got most favourite nation clauses in their supply as much as anybody else. But, um, um, you know, suddenly they'll go, well, we don't want to pay all that extra money for gas. So they are. China is still has to obey economic rules, and um, and it becomes more capitalistic in that approach as markets get more sophisticated, and the energy market is getting more sophisticated, and that should give a signal to a lot of Western companies that hey, they can use our skills, stroke software, stroke batteries, stroke other equipment. 
Um, so you know, there should there should be more people knocking on the door there. We get you know, I, I get this this feeling that sometimes people say yes, but I don't have an office in China. Um, we write about it because maybe you should. Should probably mention uh, at least in passing the the EU putting in some kind of sanctions on Xinjiang, which will definitely affect, which will cover solar. Um, but from what I heard, from what I see, it's a um, it's risk based. The national authorities are the ones that are required to positively demonstrate that a product was made with forced labor. So you have to prove that it is guilty and has to be banned rather than proving that it isn't and can be allowed in. Um, and there's a 30-day time limit on the proof. So, Yeah, I think, I think the biggest European story this week is uh, its approach that is, is um, slowly being unveiled to um, uh, how it's going to get through and how it's going to fund uh, the complete shortage of gas uh, from the mm. from the Russian cutoff. I think that's the that's the urgent story. I mean, the Xinjiang thing will roll on for two to three years, as you rightly point out. The European Commission proposes, and the, um, the European Parliament disposes, um, and and so um, clear, um, defined, and f- uh, rules which can be followed in the Xinjiang thing are, are some way off yet. Um, but I do think that the um, amount of money that they're spending on natural gas and how they're going to mitigate the lack of net, how they're going to ration it, how they're going to reduce the, the amount they use, um, what investments they're going to um, sponsor to uh, shift uh, electricity onto other areas and shift heating onto other areas. That, that's, that's another story we've run this week, uh, and we've run many others. Um, so um, I'm going to kind of close down the podcast with the message that you go to the website rethinkresearch.biz click on uh, the energy button uh, read the weekly analysis it's a free publication Um, mostly these stories come about because us as analysts need to write forecasts and and follow um, economic trends that are affecting people's ability to do business in the energy market and that that section of the website is paid we just we want to demonstrate that uh, we are following all these issues um which is why we have the weekly analysis and indeed this podcast with that um we'll see you again next week we'll say goodbye to harry um who uh, may may come back as a guest um, but he's taken the um the venture capitalist dollar and is off to uh, work elsewhere Um, Thank you and goodbye.